The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And today it's my great pleasure to speak with Dr. Denitza Blagev, who's an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Utah and director of the Schmidt Chess Clinic. And we're going to be talking about a problem that is kind of rising in importance because of many of the changes we're all experiencing in caring for our patients. And the topic we're going to be talking about is evaluation of pulmonary complaints in the emergency department. This has become more of an issue as we move to capitated care and accountable care organizations and the incentives built into care for patients in an outpatient setting. We have been and uh, we are increasingly confronted with the problem of how we determine the seriousness and the nature of the complaints that people are uh, presenting to emergency departments and what we call in the Northeast, urgy centers, but I'm sure that every area has its own version of this. And Dr. Blagav is the author of uh, an editorial in the May issue of the Annals on the evaluation of pulmonary complaints in the emergency department, time to go back to the basics. So I'm looking forward to this. And uh, there's an accompanying article by Perellis et al. on the incidental findings on CT angiogram in patients evaluated for pulmonary embolism. So I'm going to turn it over to Denise and start with what do we know about why people come to emergency departments or urgy centers with respiratory complaints? Who are these people? It turns out that respiratory complaints are one of the foremost common reasons for people to come to the emergency department, along with abdominal complaints, superficial injury, and strains and sprains and orthopedic injuries. And the challenge in a busy emergency department for the emergency physicians is to determine which of these complaints are really acute and life-threatening, such as certainly pulmonary embolism, but you know, common symptoms can also be uh, pneumonia or acute coronary syndrome or aortic dissection or other really severe complaints versus people that don't require hospital admission or significant invasive testing to determine their diagnosis. And I think that's one of the challenges, specifically with PE, I think it's a challenging diagnosis because the complaints and the symptoms can be fairly nonspecific. Chest pain and shortness of breath have a broad differential. The x-ray can often be negative, and so really a lot depends on uh, clinical judgment and trying to determine what the pretest probability for PE would be in order to determine whether further testing is warranted. What we're seeing in our area, from what I can see from the Pirellis paper in uh, Philadelphia as well is kind of a broad-based use of the CT angiogram in the emergency department, not only to deal with the issue of pulmonary embolism, but to exclude other problems or diagnose other problems. And I guess the tenor of the Pirellis 
paper and your editorial is that we're using the CT angiogram too much and we ought to be able to use other clinical tools in lieu of the CT angiogram and making these diagnoses. So I'd, I'd like to see what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So in the Perellis paper, and their data is consistent with others, the yield of the CT pulmonary angiograms for a diagnosis of PE is only about 10%. And that low diagnostic yield for PE, which is really what the CT is supposed to be evaluating for, has decreased over time as the number of CTPAs that are ordered has increased. For many in the emergency department, the CT of the chest is an appealing test because you have the idea that not only am I looking for PE, but I'll pick up pneumonia or aortic dissection or other possible things that I might be worried about that I'm not completely sure about, but we'll just get the test and just rule everything out and then feel comfortable about the diagnosis. I think one of the interesting things about the perilous paper is that our perception of how often a CTPA might be able to help us with a diagnosis when we're unsure, even when we don't necessarily confirm PE, the reality is that most of the time there are very few diagnoses that are made on CTPA that are not suspected previously or that are not visible on the plain chest x-ray. I definitely see the kind of low yields of CTPA, but missing a pulmonary embolus or a significant pulmonary embolus can be uh, devastating and life-threatening. Although the yield is low, uh, you know, there is the concern about missing that serious diagnosis. Do you think there are other tools that we might be using to help with this dilemma? Clinician overall judgment is one factor, but that's inconsistent and inconsistently applied. Certainly, there are validated scores to try to quantify the pretest probability of a PE in somebody. That, combined with the D-dimer, would identify a group of low-risk and high-risk people. And study after study has shown, and indeed the perilous paper finds the same, that in patients that are low risk for PE, so they have a low pretest probability based on their scores and low D-dimer, which in this paper was only about 15% of the patients that got a CTPA, that their risk of PE is quite low. And so that would be a population where most people would feel quite comfortable not getting a CTPA in, in order to exclude the possibility of a PE. But even with excluding those 15%, we're still left with the rest of the population and the CTPA yield would still be quite low even for those others. There are emerging data in terms of trying to refine the cutoffs for the D-dimer. So for example, having a higher lab cutoff for people that are at low risk for PE, having age-adjusted D-dimer cutoffs, that there are emerging data showing that those would be additional populations that could forego a CTPA in trying to exclude the possibility of PE. Are there uh, any other take-home messages from the Perellis paper that you think makes it important? I think one of the most informative things for me was actually what were the findings that were found on CTPA that were not seen on just the plain chest x-ray. And if you look at those, they're summarized in Table 2 in their paper. You know, some of them are a thigh abscess, a pelvic hematoma, extensive abdominal, um, tooth, abdominal tooth, metastases. Cavity, um, tooth cavity. Um, right. So they're really, the ones I mentioned were identified on the venogram part of the CTPA. And it really makes you wonder whether 
if we were able to take just a few extra minutes to examine the patient and maybe talk to them a little bit more and try and identify what their primary complaint is and that a better or more appropriate test would have been uh, ordered to identify these rather than, you know, the thigh abscess being an incidental finding on a CTPA that actually makes the diagnosis. I think the availability of CTPA, the ease with which we can order it, how quickly they can get done, it makes it quite easy for us to sort of just quickly get the test and sort it out later. And perhaps you had mentioned the increasing rise in urgent care centers where perhaps CTPA is not as available would allow people to really try to think through, is this somebody who really is at high risk for PE or is this somebody that, you know, I'm not quite sure what's going on, maybe I should just examine them a little bit more carefully. I definitely agree with that because so many, I I mean, I don't want to blanket raise issues about emergency care, but I personally have seen many instances where people in overt congestive heart failure, flash pulmonary edema, or, you know, and that's diagnosed on a CT angiogram. And it's a very strange and unnecessary situation that probably delays care. So uh, my final question is, maybe you could share your personal algorithm or approach to evaluating patients presenting to a clinic or an outpatient facility with respiratory distress. It's certainly, I, you know, I'm faced with that every day, and I want to hear how you would handle it. You know, respiratory complaints are pretty broad, but one of the big branch points is acuity of the complaint and then trying to look at their pretest probability. So there are certainly factors uh, related to the patient and their history and exam that are associated with the increased risk of DVT and PE. And so in somebody that presents with unilateral calf complaints, either calf pain or swelling that are relatively acute, their risk would be higher, tachycardia, uh, and some of the other components of the Wells score as well. And the other big factor is really the alternative diagnosis. I think especially in somebody with respiratory complaints, as you mentioned, heart failure, you know, COPD exacerbations, pneumonia, if we look at some of the other things that they found, bronchiolitis, pneumonia, which were small infiltrates that were not visible on the x-ray, then I think those are certainly things to think about before jumping to look for a PE. And certainly, I think for emergency department patients, a D-dimer to try to exclude the low-risk patients from going for these extra tests is usually recommended. The only thing I would add, and maybe you want to comment on this, is we're picking up because of the frequency with which these tests, the CTA is being ordered, we're picking up very peripheral, small pulmonary emboli that probably are incidental findings that probably would not, you know, should not have come to attention in the uh, subsegmental arterial system. And these people end up getting placed on anticoagulation with all, in a chronic anticoagulation with all the inherent risks. So it definitely can lead you down a difficult path. That's absolutely true, and I think that's why the study is showing that in low-risk patients, you know, so studies looking at patients that are low-risk both with the risk scores and a low D-dimer, their rate of PE is not zero, but it's quite low, and it makes you wonder whether those are kind of the small incidental PEs that we would have been better off not knowing about. And so in, in that low-risk population, certainly not getting the CTPA would seem to be the right approach. You know, those PEs, as you described them as incidental,
incidental findings are but one category of incidental finding that is noted on these CTs, and nearly 10% of, of the scans have incidental findings of unclear clinical significance, but in the end, they result in quite a bit of either clinical follow-up, radiographic follow-up, potential biopsies, etc. One of the most common incidental findings is incidental pulmonary nodules, and that certainly carries a burden of uh, follow-up and, and further radiation in trying to assess them. I think we got some great discussion and information, and I want to thank Dr. Bagev for sharing her insights with us. And this is Dr. Alan Fine for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, wishing you a great day and one that's full of learning and uh, good things.